With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Menas, and joining me for this edition of the show, I have Paul. How are you, Paul? Hi, Menas. Great to be here. Glad you're here today. God, if you were here yesterday, I was so filthy after Australia crashed to defeat in Candy. Wouldn't have, wouldn't have been a good day to record a podcast yesterday. And I'll tell you what kind of made it worse for me was all the vitriol and scorn that seems to emerge on social media when Australia loses a test match. Can you? What's all that about, Paul? I know you're quite active on Twitter and stuff. Unbelievable. Australia gets a lot of hate. Yeah, and it's always, it's puzzling to me because I think the main reason that we lost this test match was that we got outplayed by a team who played really well. Kusul Mendes' innings was, was absolutely magnificent, and sometimes you've got to acknowledge that the opposition deserved to win. Australia did some things wrong, but I, I don't think it's the end of the world. Yeah, but there was a lot of like nasty memes and tweets. Even people that profess to be neutral most of the time said that they got a lot of joy out of watching Australia lose. So, I mean, I know sometimes I'm guilty of maybe, maybe gloating when <laughs> England loses, but God, it really made the defeat worse. That was all the stuff on social media. I can understand people from outside Australia gloating because I think Australia sometimes invites upon themselves a little bit of that with sledging and somewhat behaviour that can somewhat be considered as arrogant. But I hope that Australians themselves, when Australia lose, particularly in this manner, can accept that it was just one of these things. In this edition of the show, we're going to be comprehensively reviewing that loss in Candy. We're also going to preview the upcoming Test match in Gaul. Then we move on to our commentator critique segment. And then after the break, there's been some huge news in Australian one-day cricket with a selection 
bombshell drops by the Aussie selectors and also Watto has been up to his old tricks in the CPL. So that's all to come. Let's start off with the scores in Candy. Sri Lanka won the first test match by 106 runs. It was only the second ever test victory over Australia by Sri Lanka and it was they've actually happened both times at Candy. We talked about the game Australia lost in 1999 when uh, Gillespie and War collided. In this game, Sri Lanka batted first and they made 117. Australia replied with 203. Sri Lanka then made 353 in their second innings, setting Australia 268 runs to win. Australia really never looked in the hunt from the beginning and they lost the game by 106 runs. It was a huge victory by Sri Lanka and a mixture of experience and youth. Now, Paul, I want to talk about the decisive innings by Kusul Mendes in this test match. He made 176 in the Sri Lankan second innings, and it was far and away the biggest and most decisive innings of the test match. Yeah, and it came at a point when it just looked like it was impossible to score runs on this wicket and to predict that someone who had never scored more than about, I think his highest score was about 50 or something in in the few test matches that he'd played, would put together in innings like this. It was just impossible to foresee. And it was just an example of the the glory and the wonder of sport and the great unpredictability of sport um, as an australian fan it was it was depressing to see him bat but as a cricket fan what a you know what an emergence of a of a future superstar now i've got some stats here to back up what a phenomenal innings it was by mendes for a start he made 176 the next highest score in the game was steve smith's 55 but i've i've gone a bit deeper than that paul and i've been crunching the numbers and I've got some stats here. So in the 23 completed innings by the top six batsmen in the test match, a total of 270 runs were scored at an average of 11.7 runs per wicket. 11.7 runs per wicket by the top six batsmen, apart from Mendes's 176. That means he's 164.3 runs above the average top six innings in the game. I mean, that's a huge disparity. It rivals some of the great innings that has that have beaten Australia. The famous partnership of, of Dravid and Laxman back in 2001. Even, Mark, I think, Mark Butcher scoring a, a, a massive score to beat Australia in the Ashes of that same year. That um, every now and again, it seems that Australia is on the end of a, of a career-defining performance from someone. And you had to feel you had to feel pretty pleased for the for the young guy and um, impressed and amazed by what he did. On that third morning, when Stark took an early wicket, I really thought the Test match could be over on that day. I thought Sri Lanka were going to really cave in against Australia's pressure, but Mendes just completely turned the tide, changed the whole momentum of the series. It was phenomenal. It's the highest score in tests at the ground. It's the highest score versus Australia in Sri Lanka. He's the second youngest player ever to score 150 plus in a test match versus Australia. And it's one of the finest made in test centuries I've seen. It rivals Lara's 277 at the SCG. It really was decisive. And I think it's just changed the whole series. Yeah, you don't want to go over the top in in working out where this inning sits, but it's hard not to because I'm, I'm really struggling to think of a better innings that I've seen any time recently. It was that good. I think, as I said, he changed the momentum of the series. Up until that point, Australia, while failing in the first innings and not getting a big enough lead, I think we were dominating the match at that point. And then he came in and arrested the momentum. And it's this I want to talk to you about now, Paul, is Australia's inability to halt the momentum in Asian conditions. We saw in India a couple of years ago, Australia crashed to a, a 4-0 series defeat. Then in the UAE, we crashed to a 2-0 defeat against Pakistan. Now we're down 1-0 in this series. 
series. That's seven tests in a row on the subcontinent. What's going on? We just don't seem to be able to turn the tide when things go, go against us. Well, I think that the I mean, Mendes' innings was, was significant. And the second most significant impact in the match was, was O'Keefe getting injured. That Australia were then left with one frontline spinner, whereas Sri Lanka were bowling with four spinners uh, throughout the second innings. The other thing I think is worth noting is that, and I, I was shamefully guilty of this last week, I, um, didn't, I totally underestimated the strength of the Sri Lankan bowlers. I proudly and probably arrogantly predicted Australia winning 3-0. Um, hopefully you can edit the, the previous podcast, Menas and Delete me saying that that would be very, um, very nice of you. But, I won't be doing that. <laughs> but if you just, I've just looked at the um, the actual bowling averages in first class cricket of the of the of the bowlers engaged. De Silva twenty two point six, Sandakan twenty two point eight, O'Keefe twenty three point eight, who then didn't bowl for a lot of the match. Pereira twenty five point one, Harath twenty five point three, Lyon thirty six point four. When you look at all that and assume that and, and note that O'Keefe didn't bowl for much of the game, we're, we're blaming the Australian batsman's inability to cope with spin. We probably should say, well, Sri Lanka have got some really fine spinners and we don't. I guess what I'm trying to get to is here, is there some mental hurdle that Australia have got now in the subcontinent? Take away O'Keefe being injured and all those factors. The fact is, this is not in isolation one bad performance. It's it's on the, the back of a lot of poor performances in these conditions. And I just think maybe we've got this mental hurdle now in Asia that we, we can't get through. And we even saw yesterday... Rod Marsh came out and said that, oh, the selectors have done everything they can for the Aussie players to, to get them ready for this tour. He's kind of thrown them under the bus. And I, I don't know, what can Australia turn it around from this position? Well, there's a few things in that. Firstly, I agree with you, yes, Rod Marsh. Was. Rod Marsh shouldn't have been saying that. I don't think he meant it to be in that way, but it, it's going to come across that way. If I was the players, I'd be thinking... He should be gagged. Yeah. I, I think no, was, not literally. It should be a gag order. I, I think it's, it's time gagged. for him to... It's time for someone else to be a selector. Uh, definitely, I agree with that. Secondly, in terms of the, um, the mental block on the subcontinent, I think it's probably... You can see evidence of that in Australia's uncertainty as to how to bat. I think they had the right idea that, that they were going to be aggressive in this match because when in the past when they've prodded and pushed, they become sitting ducks. But they went a little bit too far and Smith's dismissal in the first innings was a key turning point in the game where he jumped down the wicket to the first ball of the day that he faced against Harath and was stumped by a mile. He, he I'm sure he regrets that shot. But it, I think it shows that we're, we're sort of torn between survival and um, when we do try to score runs, we're, we're scoring them with, with risky shots. Lehman talked about keeping the game at a good pace and not allowing the game to speed up. Yet I thought in this test match, at times we made the game speed up with the manner in which we batted. Yeah, and I think that there were a few dismissals like that. Kawaja's dismissal in the second innings, especially where he tried to slog sweep a ball that was going to hit middle stump off Harath. Um, you can say that that was a, a poor shot. But again, I think that they did the right thing with, with being aggressive. They just went a little bit too far at points. Can we turn it round? Well, I think that if you look at from the positive point of view, you could say Mendes' innings was one out of the box and we did have O'Keefe injured. If you take those two things out, the Australian performance doesn't look quite so bad. But going to Gaul, this is the pitch where before the series, people like me who were predicting an Australian um, victory were kind of thinking if Sri Lanka were going to do anything, they're going to do it at Gaul. It's, the hard, it's a hard place for Australia to have to go to next, a, a, a ground where the ball spins prodigiously. And Australia have now got Nathan Lyon and um, John Holland, only two spinners coming to the side. 
neither averaging under 35 in first-class cricket, whereas Sri Lanka will probably pick 11 spinners. Yeah, I think it's hard to see us winning two test matches in a row on the back of that performance. And what really is disappointing is we had Sri Lanka in a really good position when we dismissed them for 117. For Sri Lanka to win the test match after getting bowled out for 117 was a fine achievement and a pretty poor performance by Australia's batting especially. Harath dominated. He took... Four for 49 and five for 54. He now has eight four-wicket hauls against Australia. That's only in nine test matches. So we we really have to come up with a plan to handle him in the second test. Yeah, absolutely. Look, the, the one good thing is that the, the nature of these wickets means that turnarounds are possible, that Gaul... Uh, just like Palakelli here, there, you would expect there will be periods probably at the start where it's very hard to bat on. It probably will flatten out for a while and then the spin will really start to come into its own. Um, there was a test match a couple of years ago that Sri Lanka played against India where Sri Lanka got all out for 183 in the first innings, India 375 in the second, um, and you'd say at that point they had the game at their mercy. Sri Lanka 367 and then bowled India out for 112 with Harath opening the bowling and taking seven for 48. Australia has to make sure that when we do bat at some point in the game when the conditions are okay, that's when we capitalise. It's what we failed to do here. Backing up Harath was the left-arm leg spinner Sandakan. He had the best debut ever by a left-arm leg spinner in Test cricket. He took four for fifty-three and three for forty-nine. And again, we look—we didn't have many answers to that sort of unique action of Sandakan's, did we? No, and I mean the the a couple of the balls that he got wickets with. I think of the um, the ball he got Mitch Marsh out for in the first innings. A left-arm leg spinner's wrong and that hits the top of off stump. The, the, cricket doesn't get much more poetic than that, I don't think. Marsh played down the wrong line, but you can't really blame him. And then the dismissal of Burns in the second innings, that was a, a feisty ball, a fearsome ball for, for anyone to receive. And again, as I said, he's got an average of 22 in first-class cricket. I just ignored that before the match. Uh, obviously, he's a really a really fine bowler, and we don't seem to have anyone that can match him. Yeah, and it's not something you face a lot of in domestic cricket, left-arm leg spinners. Brad Hogg's probably the only one who was playing domestically in Australia recently. There's Shamsi, the South African we saw in the World T20, but it's a really unique action. And he gets a lot of turn both ways. We saw the ball in the second innings that got Joe Burns. It turned so fast. So that was exciting to watch, actually, from a neutral's point of view. Oh, it was wonderful to watch. I mean, one ball he bowled that was a little bit short and wide of off stump, and Smith was looking to have to sort of reach for it to cut it and ended up having to play a backward defensive shot off, off leg stump with a straight bat. It had spun about a metre. And as you say, with his wrong and that's something that even the great Shane Warne didn't really have much of. But when you've got a, a wrong and that you can land and people can't pick, it, it really elevates you to the, to the top of the tree. He was a surprise packet because every, it was Harath and Pereira were billed as the main threats. But Sandikan, what a debut. Uh, you, you put that along with Mendes's two young players that have really combined to dominate Australia. Fantastic for Sri Lankan cricket. But now let's get on to the Australians. And as a way of analysing the first test match, I thought I would we'd go through each player and assess their performance in the test match and also look at what they need to do going forward. Uh, let's start up the top of the order. We'll go through in batting order. Uh, let, I just want to talk about both top orders to give you an idea of how bad the performance was from the Australian and Sri Lankan opening batsmen. They combined in their eight innings to score 53 runs in the whole test match. And that is the second lowest ever in any test match wow. and the lowest since 1935. So normally I guess someone up the top of the order gets runs, but not in this test match. That's a great start. Did you? Where did you find that stat? I'm not going to reveal my sources, um, <laughs> Paul. Now let's start with David Warner. He scored, he had a terrible match, a duck and one. He's 
one run for the game is the lowest tally by an Australian opener since Tubby Taylor got a pair in Karachi in 1994. That was actually on Taylor's captaincy debut. And for me with Warner, it was such an unfortunate test for him to have a shocker. Great openers for me. They set up the series. They score runs in that first test. They get on top of the bowlers. And we really needed him in this test match and he wasn't there. Yeah, absolutely. So often we have... Uh, when we do go um, in the subcontinent, our openers go okay and get us some runs and then the collapse comes later. When the collapse is starting at the top, that's when you know things aren't going to be good. I, I think he's still, along with Smith and Voge, is our best player and expecting big things from him in goal. I think he can bounce back, but really unfortunate in this test match. Perhaps he was caught a bit short after that thumb injury. Do you think that played into it? In the first innings, he didn't really look to have his full feet going. And then in the second innings, although though the ball kept a bit low, I don't know if it was the right op- option to be charging Harat so early. Yeah, look, I mean, whether it's, whether the injury was playing a part, I don't know. Only he would know that. Yeah, uh, but that second innings, it was it did keep very low. It's um, He maybe didn't have it play it the best way, but I think a lot of players would have got out to that ball. So bad test for Warner resulted in a bad test for Australia. Shows his importance to the Australian top order. Now, Joe Burns, his opening partner, made three in the first innings, 29 in the second innings. Unlucky in the second dig, he got an absolute ripper from Sandican. That was a ball we were just talking about. He seemed to have developed a method for playing the spinners in the second innings. He looked fairly confident coming down the wicket, and he could be a surprise packet in Asia. Well, he's the one that's been there um, really practicing hard in those conditions. And so I was expecting big things from him uh, in the series. It is a risky method jumping down the wicket and hitting over the top because, you know, it's not the kind of method that's going to see you score too many 150s. But in Gaul, if it is a low scoring game, it may be the right thing to do. And a, and a, uh, a quick fire 40 from Burns could be, the, could be a really important innings. Now, Usman Khawaja, our number three. I think he had a really bad test match. He scored 26 and 18, two starts. One of the cardinal sins for a top-order batsman is getting out once you get a start. But the huge worry for me with Khawaja is an apparent casualness that's permeating his cricket. And it's not even just in the way he's getting out, which in the first innings, he just sort of rocked back to Wrath and missed a straight one. Look, I know it's it sounds easy when we're sitting here to say he missed a straight one, but it was, seemed just casual, looked lazy... And then in the second innings, there was that T20-style swipe across the line. Paul, am I being too critical on Usman here? Well, maybe a little bit, because I think that his, his record in the last year has been absolutely phenomenal, and he's been playing with that um, on-the-surface casual approach. So it's working for him. I was critical and am critical of his shot in the second innings, but only a little bit, because I think that Smith said to them, look, trust yourselves, back your natural ability, don't play in fear. If you see the ball that's there to be hit, then hit it. And I think that's the right approach. So when you when you give someone the license to do that and then they get out in the way that Kawaja did, you can't be too critical of him. I think he probably picked the wrong ball to do that too. But... He definitely picked the wrong ball to do it too because he was <laughs> plumb in front LBW. I know, but I mean, it's without being too glib about it, on another day it would have gone for six and he, he would have um, played a match-winning innings. It's, it's you know, fine margins. But, but my whole thing is, even in interviews now, when you hear him talking, he just seems so relaxed. Uh, he's really at peace, almost too relaxed. He's not hungry enough. To, he's kind of lost that edge. Maybe he's just like Mark Waugh, that he appears that way, but he's not that way uh, up close. I don't know, but the, the way he's been getting out is really worrying for me. Too too many casual dismissals, too many starts not going on with it. In the last few months, we saw a bit of that in the West Indies. So I think him and Warner, two players that are probably up the top of our best batsmen in the t- side, really went missing in a really vital test match. 
I, I, but I'm backing them to bounce back. Um, but as I said before, in Gaul, it's going to be very difficult. I guess with um, Kawaja, what's frustrating was he did look quite good out there. He still does look in good touch, but I feel at the moment he's wasting a little bit of that good form. So again, he needs a big test match in Gaul uh, to see if he can rescue this series. Now, Steve Smith, well, he's had a really up and down game, mainly down. It's his first ever test loss as skipper, and he joins a procession of Aussie skippers to fall victim to Asian conditions. Firstly, did he blow up in this test match? Because I didn't see him blow up. No, I didn't see him blow up. I think he would have blown up had the uh, the court behind that he was given out and then DRS overturned it. Had that not been overturned, he might have blown up there. So he's done well not to blow up because he was under the pump when Mendes was out there. So I thought we'd see uh, at least one blow up per test match. So he was pretty cool, calm and collected. Even at the press conference afterwards, uh, he was pretty good. So, yeah. Pretty good performance, um, holding it together in those conditions. I'm not sure as the tactics he employed in his Sri Lanka second innings were right. Okay, he was hampered by losing Stephen O'Keefe, but he didn't bring Mitch Marsh on to, to fifth change. And when he did bring Mitch Marsh on, he got a wicket straight away. I just think that's strange not to play Mitch bowl Mitch Marsh. Yeah, and I, I think he probably could have also bowled some of the part-timers a little bit more. Now, I know that when Warner bowled, um, he, he, he bowled one over where he got hammered, but presumably Warner was given a bowl because he's been landing them well in the nets. He probably needed to give them Warner, Voges himself, uh, a little bit more of a go, given that Lyon in the second innings wasn't really looking like taking a bagful. Yeah, I'm just not sure if he backs his own bowling Smith anymore because he's really reticent to give his leggies a bowl ever. I mean, it seems like an absolute last resort for him. Well, and this is where it's this is where it's needed that these pitches are. Um, I, I find it amazing that we're going to go into the Gaul Test match with only two specialist spinners, given that Palakelli was the the non-spinning in inverted commas wicket in in Sri Lanka, and in the second innings, Sri Lanka bowled four spinners throughout the whole the whole match. We moved to the the famous most spinning ground in the world, and we're picking two spinners. I think that's crazy. Now let's talk about Smith, the batsman. He had a pretty good Test match, thirty and fifty-five. The thirty, though. We talked about his dismissal. My criticism of Smith's dismissal against Tarath was, I understand he needed to be aggressive, but I also think it required a cooler head. Australia needed to look to set up the whole day. And I think Smith probably didn't realise what getting getting himself out would do to lift the Sri Lankan spirits. And it sort of changed the momentum of that morning, changed the momentum in Australia's first innings. I think he batted so well in that second dig, though. Uh, it was a really good 55 in difficult conditions. I think he really has to set up the rest of the series with the bat. Yeah, I think he batted, he batted really well. And that, that was a, a poor shot that he played first, as I said before, first ball he faced against Harath's. I think it was the second ball of the second over of the second day. And I think if he'd not played that shot and just put the percentages in his favour, be aggressive, but don't play that. He may well have gone on and got 100 that day. He defended the shot by saying he's done that multiple times before and been successful. And as I said, it was just the timing, wasn't it? it just He really needed to just... Get, get your eye in, and, uh, and it just seemed impatient. So he'll be looking tactically and with the bat to kick on in the, the rest of this series. Now, your favourite player, Paul Adam Voges, he scored 47 and 12 in this test match. His average now sits at the miserly 87.25. So he's on the devil's number uh, for Australian cricket, but really strange dismissal in the second innings. He, he, he seemed to do a bump ball, but they, when they showed the replay, he was out. Caught and bowled. Yeah, um, and he was out. I mean, he walked off shaking his head, looking a bit bitter about the decision, but it was clearly out. I thought he batted really well in the first innings, and um, it was one of those sort of innings that 
you would struggle to put a highlights package together for. He just accumulated the runs, batted risk-free, and of all the Australians who, in terms of finding a method to succeed in Asia, um, you compare his method to Joe Burns's. Burns's is like kill or be killed. Um, Voges was just patient, took so many singles that were on offer, and I thought played really well and will quite quite likely be um, a, a key player for us in the rest of the series. Well, his dismissal in the second innings really did seem to, to put the uh, end of our chase. But what was curious about his dismissal, so he, he sort of hit one back at the bowl. It looked like a bump ball. There was hardly an appeal from the Sri Lankans, but the umpires went upstairs and it, and it showed up as being caught and bowled coming off the bottom of the bat. It made me wonder how many of these dismissals must have gone unnoticed in the past before replays came in where the ball was squeezed and you weren't sure whether it bounced first or after. Uh, you know, it just didn't look out. On, on quick time, it just didn't look out. Yeah, I agree. There were, definitely would have been some, just as there would have been a few LBWs that in the past um, umpires have gone, oh, no, not out. And everyone goes, that would have been sliding down leg. And then now you see that with um, with Hawkeye that often they're actually hitting the leg stump. Now, Mitch Marsh batting at six. He scored 31 and 25 and took one wicket. Good returns, but he's played 25 test innings now and he's only got one half century. He got two starts. He really, again, had an opportunity to, to go on and score some more runs and he didn't take it. Yeah, um, although he's not a player that's suited to these conditions and he's still 31 and 25 comparing to those average figures that you showed, you talked about earlier. He, he's outperformed most batsmen in the game. I think he had a reasonable sort of game and had the Australian top order fired a bit more, we might have said that he chipped in with a couple of valuable contributions towards a win. He looked good when he was playing with his bat in the both those innings. When he got trapped in front in the second innings uh, with the you know the pad in front of the bat, I don't think that's the way to go. I think he needs to just hit the ball, hit it hard, play it almost like a one-day game, just look to really get bat on ball. He's not someone that's going to just poke and prod and survive out there. He's best off almost like Burns, you know, kill or be killed. Absolutely. And he could do that and really, you know, if, if Gaul is a low-scoring game, um, a quick-fire 40 from him, just with just as with Burns, could be decisive. Then Peter Neville, our wicket-keeper, had an up-and-down game, a strange dismissal in the first innings, really out of character, ran down the wicket, caught, caught at mid-on, out for two, trying to hit the ball over the top of the infield. Perhaps all that slogging he did in the World T20 got to his head because that was out of character. It was. But again, I think there have been instructions to play play with confidence and you know, you've got to score the run somehow, but it, it was a very uh, uncharacteristic shot and he certainly made up for it in the second innings. <laughs> he scored nine off 115 balls in the second innings. He showed real grit and determination combined with Stephen O'Keefe for a partnership of four runs in 178 balls. That's a run rate of 0.13 runs per over. Australia didn't score a run for 25.4 overs, which is a world record. Now, if anyone out there wants a challenge, if you've got a person in your life who doesn't like cricket, get the tape of that that um, that partnership. Don't tell them about the context of the game and just watch them watch that with them and see what they think. That, to me, was more exciting than some of these T20 games you see that are just run-of-the-mill. That sort of real beauty of test cricket with all the fielders around the bat, Australia hanging on for dear life, that is really... is captures the beauty of test cricket doesn't it oh absolutely i agree i was being a bit facetious i think it was, it was wonderful with the the gathering clouds and the the darkness imminent. the drama the yeah. theater no it's it, nothing like it stephen o'keefe then tragic match for him sorry i shouldn't say tragic but really sad sad tale for stephen o'keefe being recalled to the australian side injured his hamstring bowling in the second innings will take no further part in the series 
I just really feel for him. He's put so much work to get in the side, and it puts a real hammer blow in Australia's chances in the rest of the series without him. Absolutely. He, I, I feel just sorry for him as you do. And as I said before, had he, had he not injured the hamstring, Australia may have won the game, not to take anything away from Sri Lanka, but it was a, it was a big blow to the Aussies. A bit disappointing the way that he and Neville got out in the end, having batted for so long. Neville played a, an unnecessary cut shot, um, and then um, O'Keefe was a little bit loose in his dismissal as well, but they, they'd fought gamely for a long time. O'Keefe's match was 2 for 32 and 1 for 42. He made 4 off 98 balls. He could not run in that second inning, so the, the four runs in that partnership was a boundary. He hit Mitchell Stark, 97 test wickets now, took 2 for 51 and 4 for 84. Look out for his 100th wicket in Gaul. Good bowling, looked back to his old self. Also threw a few words of advice to the Sri Lankan batsman in the second innings when things were going Australia's way. I think he had some uh, probably choice words for Mendes at times there. Yeah, pathetic. Absolutely pathetic. Um, Mendes is playing in innings of a lifetime and you're, you're giving him a gobful. Um, I, I just think it's, it's, he's such an uh, affable, intelligent guy. He's such a good bowler. He doesn't need to resort to that and it um, diminishes the way that Australians are viewed by everyone around the world. I think he's back to his best. The only thing I'd say is that he just needs to be a little bit more accurate. We need the enforcer though, don't we? We need someone to step up and throw a few barbs at the batsman. This is test cricket, Paul. I mean, I know sometimes it looks ugly, but he got criticised for so long for being too soft. I don't think we can criticise Stark now for stepping up and trying to be a bit stronger out there. I didn't criticise him for being too soft. It was just Shane Warne saying it one, one day that he needed to have... And I, I think Warne was just saying he needed to have stronger body language, um, not to go out and, and, and sniping away at, at batsmen who are doing well against him. It just... I, I think it it makes no difference in the positive. It just makes us look silly. Now, Nathan Lyon took three for 12 and two for 108 in this test match, bringing up his... 200th test wicket. He's the 16th Australian to take 200 test wickets and the first ever finger spinner for Australia to do it. I thought throughout the whole test match he lacked a bit of penetration, but mainly in that second innings when we really needed him. He, he, I don't know, he just didn't seem to have the answers. Yeah, again, he bowled, he bowled well in the first innings, but so often in, in conditions that really should be conducive to him having a big game, just as in the UAE in 2013 when the Pakistani spinners were running through Australia and Lyon, when we bowled, just didn't seem to have it. It was the same here. He didn't bowl terribly, but 5 for 150-odd in the game, you were expecting more on a wicket that was turning so much. I mean, I'm a little bit old-fashioned, but I never like it when an off-spinner goes around the wicket. I think it takes away you bowl that outside off-stump line, which I think is more menacing and get the ball turning back towards the stumps. Sometimes I think going around the wicket just negates that danger. Yeah. Taylor is always on about how he Nathan Lyon's line is too much towards leg stump, and I think he's spot on. And I think that bowling around the wicket is part of the problem for that, that he needs to be landing the ball further outside off stump and attacking off stump rather than um, bowling that kind of negative line that allows players to nurdle one on the leg side to take a single off him. And then Hazelwood had a pretty good match, 3 for 21 and 2 for 59. Bowled well, missed a court and bowled chance, but a good test match for him, all things considered. It wasn't a good test match, though, for the administration with the, the lights not being used when bad lights stop play. The Sri Lankan administration not agreeing to use the lights in this test match. Really poor administration again. Well, I don't know if it was just the Sri Lankans. I think it was a joint 
agreement. And I, I believe it's because that is it Gaul doesn't have lights and that they were thinking that they wanted to have consistency, which is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, uh, what do they take the paying public for? The, the the main thing is we want to have as much test cricket as possible. Who cares what happens in future venues? There's There's so many different things about each venue and so many nuances and bits of luck here and there. All you um, want is it available just for that game. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's not available for the next match. Exactly. It just needs to be available for the whole game. And the Australians were happy to use it. They'd said they'd use it before the series. And again, it's just cricket gone mad. There should be no room for negotiation. The ICC should say every ground that has lights, you must use them when, when, the, when, when the light is bad. And secondly... If you have a ground that doesn't have lights, either don't use it or we'll pay for lights to be put in. Now, the second test match starts this Thursday at Gaul. Sri Lanka have a very good record at Gaul. They've played 27 tests there and they've only lost six. But Australia have never lost at Gaul either. Or Australia have never lost at Gaul at all. They've won two there and drawn one. We won here five years ago. That was when Nathan Lyon took five for on debut. Ryan Harris also took five for in the match. It has secured 129 run victory but even before that back in 2004 Australia had one of its best victories in Asia where they trailed Sri Lanka by 161 runs on the first innings but went on to win the test match on the back of Gilchrist Martin and Lehman Tuns uh, Warren took 10 for the match McGill took 5 for the match so I guess Australia despite going into a ground where the conditions wouldn't favour them got a good record there yeah, they do. And I, I'm not all that optimistic, though. These exaggerated conditions do mean that anything's possible. So it certainly wouldn't surprise me if Australia were to win this match. But for a person who predicted Australia winning the series 3-0, I'm now, my prediction is now that Sri Lanka is... Uh, I would have Sri Lanka as favourite to win this Gaul Test match. Yeah, it's going to be really a big challenge for Australia to arrest the momentum. The only change you would think to the Australian lineup will be John Holland... 29 years old, coming in for Stephen O'Keefe. He's had a career blighted by injury. He has 106 first-class wickets at an average of 37.9, but he comes off a very strong shield final where he took three for 86 and five for 76. It's a massive challenge for him, flying from Australia to Sri Lanka, adapting to the conditions and making a test debut at the, at the last minute like this, huge challenge for him. It is, and I mean, it was a, a selection very much out of left field, so it seemed. If he <laughs> does succeed, though, it'll be a fairy tale. Yeah. Flown from Australia, rescues Australia's series. I mean, it's there to be taken, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, for sure. And he may well succeed because if the, if the conditions do favour the spinners, he bowls a little bit like, I mean, nominally a little bit like Harath. He's a left-arm orthodox spinner. But I, I find it very peculiar that Rod Marsh's uh, justification for picking him was that the selectors decided to replace like with like. And that it's almost as though they said, right, well, um, Stephen O'Keefe's a left-arm off spinner. We must replace someone with, with that as well. That's crazy. They should say, who is the who are the best 11 players for us to win this match? And I think that only having two spinners in the side is just the wrong thing to do. I think we need a third spinner. The cupboard is not all that well stocked. People are talking about Zampa. He was the one that I was thinking about. But looking at his first-class record, he's got an average of 50. I think the man that should have been picked is Farwad Ahmed. He's got a first-class average of about 31. I think he took the most wickets in the Sheffield Shield last season. He's a leg spinner. Um, Sandakan showed how well leg spinners can go in these conditions. Uh, I think he was our best bet to to have a bit of success. And I would be dropping reluctantly dropping Mitch Marsh to put in Farwad Ahmed and then obviously replacing O'Keefe with Holland. That's not going to happen, and I think that's a, a, a major problem. 
Yeah, I'm not so sure I would go with that balance of the side, Paul. But I think John Howland was well-performed in Australia. He's he's a little bit older, so the, look, the challenge is there. What does Australia need to do differently, though, for to win this game? I think it revolves around the top three batsmen. Warner, Burns and Kawaja have to lay the foundation because I think we saw if we put our middle order under pressure against Sri Lankan spinners, we're going to struggle. So what's your prediction? Can Australia arrest the momentum and win the game? They certainly can, and anything's possible at Gaul, but if I had to put money on it now, I'd be, I'd be backing Sri Lanka. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm with you on that, on that Paul. We've, we've changed our tune so quickly, and it didn't make it any better. All weekend, Macca, who said, oh, it wouldn't be so easy for Australia over there, sent me text messages, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. <laughs> and if, I, if you go back to listen to the tape, he actually doesn't predict Sri Lanka winning. But let's move on now. That was our analysis of the first test our predictions of Gaul. Uh, good luck, Australia. It starts this Thursday. Really good, looking forward to the second test match and a better performance from Australia. But now let's get on to the commentator critique segment. We've had some good commentary over from Sri Lanka, actually. We've had uh, Alan Border, Brendan Julian, Russell Arnold, Brian Murgatroyd. I don't know, where's Murgs from? His accent, I think, is indicative of somewhere from... Uh, like is it like Zimbabwe. Somerset? Oh no, he's English. Is he? I think he's English who's lived in Australia for a long time. So he's got that kind of um, not quite. There will be pirates around the corner sort of accent, but he's got. Um, he says eight instead of out. I think he's from the southwest of England, but now lives in Australia. Yeah, I don't mind this team from Sri Lanka. Actually, uh, they've all been pretty good, but we've got some others lined up for analysis this week. First up, Tom Moody. What do we think of Tom Moody as a commentator? What do you think? I think he's quite quite good. I, I put him in that category of he's certainly not someone who I would feel the need to mute. But on the flip side, he's not someone that I would say, I'm not all that interested in this game, but because Tom Moody's commentating, I'll have a listen. I just think he's pleasant. Um, he seems like a nice guy, has obviously a wealth of experience and insight, um, doesn't, doesn't gibber too much. Um, he's quite frank, isn't he? Yeah, he's a perfectly acceptable, good commentator, a nice, solid commentator. Now, next on the list, Ricky Ponting has really come out of his shell as a commentator, in my opinion, on the Big Bash commentary. Uh, we're seeing that sort of fun-loving, uh, youthful Ricky Ponting that, that he was before, really, he was given the test captaincy. It's funny because a lot of people are surprised by how well-spoken he is, but he was always well-spoken as captain. Um, he was frank in interviews and was quite willing to be um, candid in interviews, and I think that's that's translated well into, into into the Big Bash commentary. And a lot of people in England were surprised when they heard him commentate. Um, I think over there recently were, were, were people who didn't like him all that much were reluctantly realising he actually seems like a really nice guy and a really interesting guy, and I think that he is. Yeah, but it's the fun that he brings to the commentary. You, you take the, the tension, a bit like Alan Border, now that they're not captains and we see that sort of uh, jokey side come out, it's been, you know, it's been refreshing to see that side of Ponting because, you know, he was struggling as the captaincy and you, you didn't see much of that. Yeah, I think that Border was the greatest one that um, he, he appeared on the, on the footy show in Melbourne, I think, a few weeks after he retired back in 1994. And they just said, geez, you look relaxed. And he, like 10 years, had just lifted off his shoulders. And it, the fact that he's just a decent, nice, friendly, relaxed guy that had been hidden for a decade came back to the fore. It was wonderful. Now we're moving into more radio commentary now, Paul. We've got Chris Rogers uh, up for assessment. A very thoughtful commentator for me, almost too thoughtful. I must admit, I haven't listened to him as much as I as I could have because as much as I like ABC Radio, when the cricket's on the TV, I'm always going to watch the TV rather than listen to the radio. What I have heard of him, though, I like. And um, he, he does sound as though he's uh, a little bit more cerebral than a typical cricketer, and I, I welcome that. 
from, yeah, from the snippets I've heard of him, I, I, I couldn't say that he's too thoughtful and too boring yet because I haven't heard enough of him, but he, he, he's someone I, I think I quite like. Yeah, I like the fact that he went at Chris Gale after what happened, even though the fact that they might be teammates in the English summer at the moment, he was so outspoken in his criticism. So has a lot of potential, Chris Rogers, I think, in the future uh, as a commentator. I, sorry, I agree on that, definitely. Um, it, it was good that he went on Chris Gale. It showed a lot of, showed a lot of confidence because he knew that it wasn't going to go down well with Gale and um, good on him for doing it. Now, uh, we've had some requests from uh, some of our listeners. The, one of them asked for an analysis of Jim Maxwell, the ABC radio commentator, who also does a lot of work for BBC when Australia are over in England. Now, this is we're getting into sort of a professional broadcast, and we haven't had many on the list here. Jim Maxwell, not a former cricketer, did his apprenticeship uh, working in the box at the ABC, a real professional. I think he's a really good radio caller. Yeah, I like him, and he and there should be more of them that are that are non ex players. Um, he's a he's a very good commentator. I suppose he's not at the level of um, of some of the real greats, in my opinion. That that the McGillvrays. I was too Arlets. young. I was too young for McGillvray, and certainly too young for Arlett. But yeah, he doesn't seem to be at that. Um, it doesn't quite captivate me at that that that, that at that top level. But he's, he's always a little old fashioned, isn't he? As well, sometimes. Yeah, maybe he's got a very good gravelly Australian voice for radio that sounds that sounds quite good. He sounds like a um, he's, he's a very knowledgeable. I once was at a um, a random lunch that they had a cricket trivia competition, and our table I just thought oh, we'll win because I'm <laughs> I'm pretty good at this. And um, our table got thrashed by another table, and it turned out because um, Jim Maxwell was at that other table, and I thought you know there's a level above me and probably a level above that that I didn't that I didn't know in terms of cricket tragicness. I heard him being interviewed, and he talked about something he learnt, which is just interesting from a technical point of view of commentating. Well, when the ball is running in, you actually commentate that he lets the ball go just before he does so that when the crowd roars, if there's a four or a six, your voice is not drowned out by the crowd. So you actually go, McGrath runs in, lets the ball go just a couple of seconds before he actually lets the ball go. Interesting technique. Yeah, it is interesting. Now let's end this critique with Nasser Hussain, uh, English commentator, obviously, ex-English captain. I don't mind Nasser as a commentator, actually. Oh, he's the best of all that we've discussed so far by a long way. NASA has saying the best of all today, or the best all ever? of all the ones we've done in the podcast. That's a so huge far. call, NASA massive Hussain, call. Absolutely top quality, NASA Hussain. Um, they should have. I think him. you're going a bit overboard here. No, no, I'm, I'm, um, I really like NASA Hussain as a caller. He should be. Um, he should be on Channel Nine. He just seems that he's. He's, he's smart, he's interesting, he's entertaining, he's got the right balance um, and I could listen to him all day and um, much prefer him to, to almost anyone else. So I think at the moment the skybox with him and Atherton, those two together. Um, and Bumble. Uh, Bumble's very good, but I still Atherton and Hussain, to me, are the two preeminent cricket commentators of, of, the, of the current era. Well, that's a big call, Paul. Uh, a lot of praise there for Nasser Hussain. I don't mind him either. I think the Sky Sports box has a better dynamic than perhaps the Channel 9 box. Uh, they've, they've got a – just because it's cable TV, we've talked about this, it's not as commercial. But, yeah, I think Hussain's okay. He's certainly um, not as – I'm not going to put him up there <laughs> like you did, but he's all right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that, listeners. would love to hear your feedback on all those commentators. I also want to thank Ian for subscribing to the show via 
Patreon. I promised him I would read this out, and he dedicated his subscription to James Anderson and Shane Watson. So there you go, Ian. I've done it. If you want to get in touch with the show, we're on Gmail, OzCricketPod, AUScricketPod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at OzCricketPod. We're on Facebook as the Australian Cricket Podcast. We're on all the podcast apps you can find. Please subscribe to the show. Leave a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Get in touch via the commentators. And if you'd like to, please subscribe to the show via Patreon. Here comes the West Enders captain, Gary Sobers. Welcome back to the Australian Cricket Podcast. That was my old cricket coach, Barry Knight, bowling Gary Sobers, who turned 80 in the last week, and tributes have been flowing in from around the world for Gary Sobers. Now, huge news yesterday, Paul, huge news. Glenn Maxwell has been dropped from the one-day side uh, for the tour of Sri Lanka, the one-day leg in Sri Lanka. What is going on? Maxwell gone. Well, ultimately, he just hasn't been consistently scoring any runs and the selectors have taken a stand. I think I'm a massive fan of Maxwell and I've always said I want him in the test side as well. You want him opening the batting in test and one-day cricket, is that correct? Yeah, and keeping as well. I think it's a good thing that they've dropped him and we've seen so many examples of players in this country who have been dropped and have come back better for it. I hope that he's going to be one of those. His strike rate in one-day cricket overall is still, I think it's still around about 100 which is wonderfully entertaining and means that he's the crowd favourite. I think he does need to rein it in ever so slightly in the first 20 balls of his innings. I'd prefer to see the next half of his one-day career, because I'm sure he'll come back, with an ever so slightly lower strike rate, You know, drop his strike rate by five and increase his average by 10. I think that's the standard of player that he, that he should be. Well, it's been a huge kick up the backside by Rod Marsh for him because last year he's he was so good in one-day cricket. He averaged 46 with the bat last year in one-day cricket. And this year he's only averaging 25 with the bat. It's been a big drop-off. So he's been dropped. Travis Head has also been dropped, and which I find strange that Maxwell and Head are both dropped. And Sean Marsh and Henrique's come in. Neither of those can bowl part-time spin like Head and Maxwell. So I'm not sure if the balance of the side is right. But it, it's obvious. They're just trying to give Maxwell a kick up the ass. <laughs> it's strange that Sean Marsh comes back in. How, how often does that seem to happen? That uh, he, he's in and out, in and out, in and out for so long. Um, I, I think that it also shows that they don't value this series all that highly, which is no slight on Sri Lanka. It's just that bilateral one-day series just come and go these days in the the, the World Cup. They're perfect conditions for Maxwell. Part-time spin yeah. plays, you know, in subcontinent so often, but they've obviously just said, no, it's just you need to do better. If this was the World Cup, I think they'd be picking him still, and that would be right. But a huge bombshell by the selectors. I didn't see it coming, him missing the squad. I thought maybe he'd struggle to make the final 11 for a couple of the games, but yeah, hu- huge shock for him, and he's now got the Matador Cup and some a- Australia A cricket to, tw- to try and propel himself back into the national setup. And that could be the best thing for him, playing in the Matador Cup rather than, um, you know, the pressure of international cricket going out with his um, position on the line, coming back, playing some state cricket where he'll be the big fish in a small pond. He might go back to basics and really start to excel and hopefully will. I still think he can have a test career as well. Now, I've got a, I've got a great highlight from the CPL this week. And the, the highlight from the CPL this week was almost... 
and I'll start with this one, that there was a, a drinks fridge next to one of the benches and one of the Guyana Amazon warriors hit the drinks fridge on the full with a six and sent glass flying, which Mike Hazelman dubbed as extraordinary. <laughs> um, that was almost the highlight of the week in the CPL. But this morning, Shane Watson has had an absolute shocker batting for the Zooks. He tried to walk off after 19 overs. And Darren Sammy, the captain who's batting with him, is like, Shane, where are you going? There's still one over of the innings left. And he's going, oh, no, I thought it was 20. And then he doesn't believe, Sammy, that there's one over left, and he has to go and ask the umpire. <laughs> and it was like, what a, it's a T20 game. It's not a T19 game. So what a, it was hilarious to watch. Did the, the, the scoreboard have, was the scoreboard right? Oh, well, obviously, maybe there was something going on with the Florida scoreboard, but everyone else seemed to know that there was still one over to go, except Wada, and then he was so stupefied, he didn't even believe Sammy. <laughs> oh, Wada, oh, Wada, but it didn't affect his batting, actually. He had 42 of 17 balls with five sixes wow. this morning. So Watto and Huss's St. Lucia's Zooks have won five out of their last six games and qualified for the finals. Watson is the team's leading wicket taker and the team's second leading run scorer. So he's really enjoying the CPL. Now, the way the finals is decided for the CPL, Guyana Amazon Warriors take on the Jamaica Talawas and the winner goes through to the final. The loser of this game plays the winner of the Zooks v Trinbago. So... A knockout game there for the Zooks featuring Bago. So, yeah, the pointy end of the CPL concludes in St. Kitts this week. And you said that you've um, the, the crowds at Florida didn't look all that special? No, they looked completely empty. Uh, the games I saw this morning, it really like there was no one there. So I'm not sure it's such a good idea going back there after this. Sounds as though it wasn't promoted all that well because you'd think that if they really wanted to promote it properly, even if you gave tickets away, that you'd be able to find a way to energise the the existing cricket fans that there would be in Florida. There'd be some, um, you know, Indians and Pakistanis and uh, English who live there that you could have energised to go to the game. Plus, there'd be some West Indians that would live there as well. So it's a bit disappointing they can't get a crowd. I guess as well, the fact that it's not just one game, the fact that it was five or six games means that perhaps if you're a cricket fan living there, you'll go to one, but you're not going to go to all of them kind of thing. So probably watered out the crowds a little bit. I didn't realise it was that many. Yeah, that's that sounds a bit silly. They, I think if they're going to have five or six there, they need to have a side called um, Miami or a side called Florida. Well, I guess, uh, Paul, we should wrap this podcast up now. We've, um, the, the, the only thing I will say is that there's probably as many people here for this podcast as there was when Steve Smith was presented the Test Championship mates this week in farcical circumstances. So Steve Smith was supposed to be given the the Test Championship mace and the $1 million check before the Test match. But Sri Lanka objected, saying it wasn't good for their psychology to see Australia get the, the check and the trophy before they're about to play. So it was done a couple of days before in like a private ceremony. What a, what an anticlimax. Well, it further fuels the, the need for a, a Test Championship. And we've, got, we've talked before about how difficult it is and all the challenges of formatting. But Maybe we could actually do it on the show next time, get Smith here and the three of us could... <laughs> Uh, the four of us could have the trophy and the check because I think it would be just as exciting as what they did this week. The way things are going, we might might not be Steve Smith who's joining us. It might be Alistair Cook. Oh, God, I might edit that bit out. What a, what a <laughs> clanger to finish the show on, Paul. God. Um, but, yeah, look, by the end of this series, Australia could be down third in the rankings if the results don't go our way um, over in England in, in the West Indies in the India series. So, yeah, Australia have the number one ranking at the moment, but I don't know for how much longer. Yeah, and the Tour of India is going to be a really tough one in February. 
Well, listeners, enjoy the cricket this week. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. We'll be back to review the second test next week and uh, enjoy the cricket. Thanks, Paul, for coming along. Thanks, Benners. What a marvellous stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of this series. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.